Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is And That's The Way It Was for November 8th, 2018. I'm very happy to bring you guys another interview today, uh, and not just any interview, but another returning guest. Uh, I'm going to be joined uh, by Skype in a couple of minutes here by Hannah Geis. Uh, Hannah Geis is a freelance writer and graduate student at Harvard Divinity School, where she focuses on Eastern Orthodoxy and nationalism in Russia. And she has been on the show before. She was on with us in February to talk about Vladimir Putin and his nefarious deeds uh, to undermine American democracy uh, and take over the world. Uh, So I'm happy to have her back. She will be talking today with us about Orthodox Christianity. Uh, I told you this was going to be something different, and this is definitely something different. Uh, There has been, if you haven't been following it in the news, uh, a schism in the Orthodox Church. Uh, The Ecumenical Patriarch of Constantinople has given the Ukrainian Orthodox Church permission to set up an autocephalous uh, church, uh, uh, independent of Moscow, so independent of the Russian Orthodox Church. And the Russian Orthodox Church has responded by cutting off the ecumenical patriarch uh, and breaking away, I guess, from uh, the Orthodox Church. So we'll talk about what the implications are of that. Mostly we'll talk about what any of this stuff means, how the Orthodox Church is organized, how it works, because I don't understand it. Uh, I figure there are a lot of people out there who don't understand it, but Hannah is one of those people who does understand it, so hopefully she'll be able to to help us with that. Hannah's written a piece about the schism uh, and uh, about the relationship that the Orthodox Church in general has with the concept of the nation-state. It's an interesting uh, take on the the situation. Uh, And I'm also very pleased to say that she's going to be publishing that at And That's the Way It Was, uh, which I'm hoping to do kind of concurrently with this interview. I'll try to post them at the same time, and I'll put links to, you know, I'll link them to one another uh, when I do. Uh, we're going to talk about, like I said, the, the way the Orthodox Church works. We're going to talk about her piece. I'll ask her to kind of, uh, draw out some, or, you know, offer some context for some of the things in her piece. Uh, and, uh, we'll talk about what the implications of the schism are for the Orthodox Church, for the conflict in Ukraine, uh, and for, you know, uh, Russia and, and Ukraine in general. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited for this. Uh, I'm excited to answer some of my own questions about the Orthodox Church uh, and hopefully to answer some of yours, even questions that you maybe didn't know you had. Uh, and so with that, uh, let's start the interview. Okay, uh, back for her second stint <laughs> on this podcast. Uh, I'm very happy to have Hannah Geis a freelance writer and graduate student at the Harvard Divinity School who is going to explain to me how the Orthodox Church works. Hannah, thank you uh, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) All right. So, uh, yeah, basically, uh, I I blocked out five minutes. Tell me how the Orthodox Church works. No, I'm sorry. That's I'm not kidding. Uh, that that's I don't think you could do that in in five hours, really. But uh, <laughs> it just seems to be a, a labyrinth of stuff. Uh, but hopefully, we can cut through it a little bit here. Uh, all right. So 
what we're here to talk about is the decision by the ecumenical patriarch to allow the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to separate itself, and stop me if I'm getting any of this wrong, separate itself from Moscow uh, and form its own autocephalous Orthodox Church. Uh, in response to that, the Russian Orthodox Church has cut off ties with the ecumenical patriarch, and uh, there is a schism, I guess, in the works here. Um, my understanding of the Orthodox Church pretty much ends with the point at which it separates from the Catholic Church in, like, the 11th <laughs> century. Um, explain uh, a little bit about how the Orthodox Church is organized, you know, from its sort of roots. Uh, I know that there was something called the Pentarchy before the schism, where there were five patriarchs in the Christian Church after the Christian Church had kind of uh, co-opted the Roman Empire. Uh, there was Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, I think, and Alexandria, uh, yeah. and and Rome and Constantinople. Uh, kind of vied with each other for supremacy, and that led to the schism. So now Rome is not one of the patriarchates. Uh, how how is the Orthodox Church the the Catholic Church is easier for me to understand. It's a like corrupt multinational institution. That's pretty easy, uh, but like a massively corrupt you know uh, global thing. Uh, but the Orthodox Church is broken up into these like national churches and different little patriarchs and metropolitans and archbishops all over the place if you can do it and i know this is a, a, a very archaic thing to ask but if you can do it in a, a few minutes explain how this is all structured okay so basically the the church consists of a number of uh, patriarchates um so the first of them equals is constantinople um and basically what that means is Constantinople in the pre-schism era was elevated to uh, basically the new Rome. Um, so Rome was still, still had privacy, but that began, obviously that changed after the schism. Um, so Constantinople, despite the collapse of the Byzantine Empire in 1453, has still continued to see itself as the, uh, basically the center of the Orthodox Church. Um, it, unlike the Catholic Church, because uh, basically the Orthodox Church sees itself as significantly more conciliar, so a, a decision that can be considered universal and binding is one that would be made uh, during an ecumenical council, um, since we haven't had one of those since before the schism. Um, I mean, there are, there are ways that uh, basically that um, doctrine can be clarified and accepted, but it's not, there's no notion of like ex cathedra or basically like kind of papal supremacy that you would have, that you have in the West. Um, so there's no CEO. There's like, this is all supposed to be done by consensus. Yeah, there's, there's a very nice man in uh, Constantinople, also known as Istanbul, 
But but um, for the purposes of the church, I know this is like a thing on Twitter. Anytime somebody says the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople, like twenty people respond, uh, "It's Istanbul now." It's not for the purposes of the church. Yeah, and also um, all the people. This is to all the people who made that joke like twenty times. It's not funny. It's really old and annoying, <laughs> and I've heard it a hundred times. And I do not care. Yes, I know about the uh, it might be giant stuff. Um, <laughs> In fact, I'm sure Hitler Bartholomew um, also knows about the They Might Be Giant song, because I'm sure some idiot has decided to uh, tell him about it. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so basically it makes everything significantly more confusing, although, I mean, in terms of just, I think, how the early church was structured, and in terms of if you, I mean, if you think of the apostles, too, and sort of how the power dynamics were there, it makes sense. Um, but the problem, and this is sort of at the root of the problem of the Ukraine crisis, is that there's now this notion of national churches. Um, obviously, the nation state wasn't a thing in 580, and uh, there was also an empire, and the emperor could call councils and bring church leaders together, but there's no, there's no sever of power um, that exists today like that. Well, the close, I mean, the closest thing is, is Russia. And the, I guess one question I have is the, like the, the rise of the nation state has led to these kind of churches all over the place. Like you have the Bulgarian Orthodox Church. I mean, the Balkans are just full of, you know, national churches, basically. But the Russian Orthodox Church has been around for a long time. How did that come about? Like, why is the Russian Orthodox Church somehow distinct from the Orthodox Church or distinct from uh, these other kind of patriarchates, which, you know, had kind of a built-in... Uh, I guess, autonomy from Constantinople. How did Russia get on that level? Uh, so basically, I mean, part of it's a historical thing. There's this notion of the Third Rome that you hear bandied about, especially with regards to Putin, uh, Putin's project to make, continue the legacy of Moscow as the Third Rome, um, which basically dates back to a letter from a monk to the Tsar, uh, basically in the medieval period that described Moscow in kind of so many uh, sort of esch eschatological terms and also just elevated it to this notion of the Third Rome and the New Jerusalem. Um, but part of it was power. So once, once Constantinople fell and became part, I mean, and basically the church became part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, essentially, there there was a power void, and Moscow was on the rise. Russia was on the rise, and it sort of stepped in to a, to a certain extent to help fill that. Um, so basically, what the argument this took a couple of forms, but basically the argument between Constantinople and Moscow right now is over a pair of documents from uh, 1686 that essentially in Constantinople's mind transferred the right, basically the right of, appoint of appointing hierarchs 
specifically um, like upper hierarchs that you would need patriarchal approval from to Moscow. It says this is temporary because obviously the political climate at the time was not particularly <laughs> great for the church. Um, Moscow, however, says no, this was a permanent thing. Fuck you. Um, this is, we now have the right to grant autocephaly. We have to, we basically you gave us this and you are now changing history, trying to rewrite history by saying that you didn't. Um, so yeah, I mean, the short answer is that it just go. It's it basically has to do with how imperial power shifted within the broader Orthodox world during that period. So, talk uh, about uh, this is, I think, the last archaic history question I'm going to ask. But uh, what what is the role like of the ecumenical patriarch? How how like he, I mean, it seems uh, he's claimed the power to uh, decide that the Ukrainian Orthodox Church can separate itself from Moscow. Is that true? I mean, when you describe the way that uh, the the Orthodox Church works without a, a pope figure at the top, it, it seems to me like the Bartholomew, the Ecumenical Patriarch, is is kind of claiming some papal type authority here uh, by doing this is is he uh, within his rights to 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 do you know to to give ukraine permission to do this or is he kind of uh, you know fudging it a little bit yeah so basically what they would say and i think i agree with this um from a canonical perspective is that the ecumenical patriarchate is essentially the it has juris it has effective jurisdiction over essentially all parts of like that were not part of a historical patriarchate. Um, so one example would be the United States. Uh, and essentially the argument would then go that I, it, it would be upon the decision of the ecumenical patriarchate to grant the church in this far off land that to grant their own decision of autocephaly or autonomy um, within Orthodox jurisd jurisdictional talk. Those are kind of two different things. Um, but basically what Russia is saying is like, well, that this was under us. Um, whereas what Constantinople is saying is, well, this used to be under, I mean, basically what used to be the Ki Kievian metropolitanate used to be under, uh, used to be ours. Um, and that therefore we are the ones who can grant this Thomas of autocephaly or declaration of autocephaly. So, I, 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 all right. So now we can kind of move uh, in that direction. Like what, what are the implications of granting autocephaly? What does that mean in terms of, uh, you know, if you want to answer it in kind of general terms, that's fine. Or specifically, um, you know, in this case for Ukraine and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church to have to be autocephalous and, and you know, separated from Moscow or separated from the Russian Orthodox Church. What are what are, what's all goes into that? Uh, 
<laughs> All right, then. Um, so it's complicated, uh, partly because... So one of the things that Constantinople did in this decision to grant Thomas of Adicephaly that probably was almost more controversial um, to the Russians was it brought back into the fold two hierarchs who had been previously excommunicated, uh, both of whom were associated with the autocephalous movement in Ukraine. So Metropolitan Filaret, who is this really like fiery, um, punchy hierarch who I think, I mean, I think he once compared like Putin to the devil or something. Um, from Russia's perspective, I think it, it kind of makes sense, but I don't really like it much. Um, and Archbishop Makari, I probably pronounced his name wrong. Um, so the question is essentially who's going to lead an autocephalous Ukrainian church and what that looks like. At the moment, it's unclear. Um, I suspect what is probably the plan is to, I mean, is to basically, there are two autocephalous movements in Ukraine. Basically, they're both two different churches. Um, probably push them together in some capacity. Okay. Um, but what you still have is a the Ukrainian Orthodox Church under the Moscow Patriarchate. Now, what happens to that, I'm not really sure, because it, there are a couple of different complex questions here. And the biggest one is property and money. Um, because as it stands right now, is Moscow has, I mean, basically Moscow has, owns much of this. It belongs most a lot of the property that we would typically associate with the Orthodox Church in Ukraine belongs to Moscow unless it's under either of these two autocephalous churches. Um, that so that I have no idea. There are other questions too, like Mount Athos, which is the Center for Orthodox Spirituality. Um, that's off of a peninsula in Greece. That's overseen by the Patriarchate of Constantinople, but it also has Russian monks. And the Russian monks who are under the Moscow Patriarchate who are on the mountain and draw the same amount of tourists and mostly, I mean, pilgrims. And who knows? I mean, as it's right now, they can't commune with other, with basically any of the other monks who are under the, under Constantinople. Um, so it's confusing, and I think one of the things that's probably going to happen, especially since it doesn't seem like this is going to be a super temporary problem, is that lines are going to have to be drawn, and that's honestly, I think, going to take some time. So, I mean, the the result here, and I want to ask you about the, the autocephalous movements in, in Ukraine in a second, but the, the outcome here... Like, let's say that the two autocephalous movements in Ukraine are encouraged to kind of join together. The end result would be basically, I mean, am I wrong? It would be like two Orthodox churches in Ukraine. There would be one that still uh, responds to the, or is under the, the patriarch in Moscow. But then there would be another who's under a patriarch, probably, I guess, in Kiev. Uh, and then that patriarch would be kind of under the ecumenical patriarch. Is that is that how the organization would work? 
Uh, so if it's homocephalus, it would be self-ruling. So okay. basically, it would not be under the... It would have been granted kind of its own freedom okay. by the Patriarchate of Constantinople, but it would be self-governed and self-appoint okay. um, its own hierarchs. Okay. Uh, so talk about the, these autocephalous movements. There are two of them. One is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, uh, the Kiev Patriarchate, and then there's another called the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church. Is this a is this something that that just kind of began in the '90s after the Soviet Union collapsed, or are there deeper roots here in terms of a a movement to have a separate Ukrainian Orthodox Church? Uh, so there are deeper roots. It actually, um, interestingly, goes back to the revolution. Um, so uh, basically, in 1921, there was an all-Ukrainian uh, sobor, or just kind of meeting of church leaders, um, in Kiev, where uh, church leaders declared independence from the Moscow Patriarchate. So if you think of kind of what's happening at this point, is the there has been the Russian Revolution? Um, the Tsar is out, obviously, and has been out for a while. Um, there's also a sort of rising tide of like, sort of like this this notion that you can have these sort of independent nations with like, under sort of Soviet broader Soviet power, and then the assertion of the national identity in a way that isn't super exclusive and um, contrary to the contrary to the Soviet project, is good. Um, so they declare independence from the Moscow Patriarchate and establish what's known as the Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church. Um, of course, this doesn't really last because uh, <laughs> Soviet anti-religious yeah, laws. Yeah. Um, so it kind of dies. Uh there, during World War II, there's a group known as the Uniates, who are uh, basically Byzantine Catholics. They use the Byzantine rite, um, but they answer to the Pope. And what you see actually in parts of, especially Western Ukraine, is um, some of these more independent religious movements like being like, oh, hey, Nazis, you're letting us do our thing because... Well, the unwritten argument here is that the, they're letting us do our thing because it pisses off the Soviets. Um, so that ends quickly, too. Um, so basically what happens in the 1990s is after, well, around the time that the USSR is collapsing, um, the UAOC is resurrected. And... Uh, there's a, and basically the UOC MP um, is now sh also sharing territory with it. Uh, the UOC KP, which is the Ukrainian Orthodox Church of the Kievan Patriarchate, which is one, another one of the autocephalous churches, is also the, is formed out of a, a break too. Um, it's all very weird. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's all extremely confusing because you have all these different churches too, and really there's nothing that seems all that different about them. So you can easily walk into any four of these, actually. And 
depending on which hierarchy they mention during a service, you may not be able to tell them apart. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So when, yeah, when basically when spouting that out, it's just like, Oh, this, this really on the ground. I mean, it's, it's extremely convoluted and it's on, I mean, the boundaries on paper seem a little easier to understand, but at the same time, not really. So after the the fall of the Soviet Union, you you write in this in the paper that you've or the piece that you've written, which uh, I will be publishing uh, hopefully to coincide with the interview. Uh, the the status of the Ukrainian autocephaly movement kind of wavered for you know I mean basically until like 2014 when the 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 big break to happen between Russia and Ukraine it kind of depended on uh who was in charge in Ukraine at that point whether they were a kind of a, a pro-russian figure or anti-russian figure and kind of uh, official favor uh, for these autocephalous movements you know either they were uh, they were really out of favor or they'd be in favor depending on on who was in charge um it, this is different <laughs> like the break that that happened in 2014 it seems like uh you know it's 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 going to be a lot more permanent in the sense that at least in central and western ukraine like there's no going back from this there's no flopping back in the other direction kind of toward russia um and and this move seems to be um the the move to establish an autonomous ukrainian church seems to be kind of uh, burning that bridge i guess in a sense uh, what what do you think is going to happen here in terms of the situation in eastern ukraine which is still very friendly to russia obviously and in open rebellion against kiev uh, and the church there versus the church in in central and western ukraine is this is it a sustainable situation if they can figure out all the kind of like property things and the divorce proceedings basically is it even is it sustainable to have you know a third or half of the country kind of uh, oriented toward moscow and its religious leanings versus the the rest of the country kind of you know breaking away is that how how much of a long-term problem is that going to be i guess um, I don't think it's sustainable. I think it would also just become incredibly confusing. Um, but the one thing that that's tricky to do is that so the basically the branch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that's under the Moscow Patriarchate it's not necessarily aggressively pro Moscow. And there was actually um, some controversy after the Maidan and especially after the annexation of Crimea, in terms of the response by UOC um, MP hierarchs, um, and even even actually within the Russian church proper, that didn't actually really align with what the state was pushing out, the sort of kind of ethno-nationalist argument. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's complicated because it, it's possible that you would just have people 
in the East, I suppose, stay under Moscow. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of, in terms of, like, what that would actually have in the, what effect that would actually have on the ground in terms of church populations, it's kind of hard to say. Um, and really depend. I mean, it really depends on the individual parish, too, I think. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like, uh, I don't know, I mean, obviously there are plenty of countries in the world that make this work with multiple believers, you know, kind of uh, in, in kind of communion with churches all over the place, but it just seems like in this case, with this conflict, uh, it's going to be difficult to, to it's just going to be another thing kind of pulling these two parts of the country apart. Mm -hmm. uh, there's not going to be a way to kind of say, okay, I mean, you know, you guys want to be under the Moscow Patriarchate, we'll be under the Kiev Patriarchate. We don't, that we can all get along with one another. It doesn't seem like that they're going to go in that direction, right? That they're going to kind of say, live and let live. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I, I suspect what will happen is like, that will eventually be realized. Um, whether that also just kind of comes out of the result of Moscow eventually just giving in and saying, okay, we're fine with this. Right. Which is, which is possible. I mean, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think probably where it would end up being the most important wouldn't, necess wouldn't necessarily be on the ground in Eastern Ukraine, but probably in terms of just Ukrainian politics writ large. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right. That like the it would be more uh, something that aggravates the far right, like the nationalists. Mm -hmm. You know, then I mean, that, that's that would be my guess is that in, instead of being like the the big effect of it would be kind of as an ongoing thumb in the eye of groups like Azov and, and you know, the, the kind of far right element of in Ukrainian politics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's move out of Ukraine for a second and talk about uh, the Orthodox church. And first I want to ask you uh, what, what does this mean uh, for, the Russian Orthodox Church, how much of a blow is it in terms of, you know, losing parishes or losing, I know it's hard to count uh, individual believers or individual members of the church, um, but, you know, talk a little about that and, and whether or how much of a factor that is in sort of the anger, you know, kind of angry response that's coming out of Moscow over all of this. Yeah, I mean, that's a big part of it because so Ukraine, despite being a significantly smaller country than Russia, actually has a, under the Moscow Patriarchate, um, there's, a, I think it's probably a, close to half. I'm not exactly sure the exact statistics. Uh, under the Soviets, it was actually, I think there were more parishes in Ukraine than there were in Russia. Um, but basically what it's, losing is a tremendous amount of land and holy sites. And there's obviously the whole kind of historical memory aspect of this, like Kiev was where, uh, was basically it was where um, Christianity came to Russia, 
by a Russian argument. Um, so that's a big factor of it. it. Basically, what it means in terms of global orthodoxy is that it means that the Russian church, which was once the basically the biggest orthodox church, is now not, um, and is losing a certain amount of stat. It, it is in the process losing a certain amount of status. Uh, that's a so. What is what would what is the biggest orthodox church now then? Uh, that I actually don't know. Okay. My guess, uh, my guess, my guess is would be the ecumenical patriarchate, just by virtue of like. Okay, in terms kind of, of all the little yeah. individual well, like parishes the, and the, dioceses. Yeah. Okay. So basically, within Europe is one thing, but then also um, you have most of the Greek parishes in the United States would be under the ecumenical patriarchate. Okay. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know exact statistics. Um, but what's interesting is it seems like most of the other Orthodox churches have not really decided to take Moscow's side on this. Um, I think one of the big questions after, after the announcement in October, um, that Moscow was breaking communion was, well, are any of these other autocephalous Orthodox Church is going to decide to side with Moscow. And I think to date, not really. Um, so yeah, I mean, in term, the, the real question that I don't think anyone still has an answer for is what this means in the diaspora. So places like the United States, Canada, et cetera, um, where someone like me, who's baptized Greek Orthodox, I mean, the question is whether I could go to like a Russian Orthodox church or a, what's known as the Russian Orthodox church outside of Russia, which is part of the main Moscow Patriarchate now, but um, wasn't historically. Okay. So, yeah. And then there are questions too for like priests. Um, I talked to someone who is a Rokor priest whose confessor is Greek. Like, <laughs> What do you do then? <laughs> it's a mess. Yeah, well, confession is a sacrament. Uh, or, well, absolution is a sacrament. And shrug. <laughs> <laughs> so you, t you you mentioned other the other uh, autocephalous churches. Are there other autocephalous churches that have uh, been formed in former Soviet states? And and how much of a fit? did Moscow pitch about those? I assume this is worse. This has to be worse. And, and there are reasons why. I mean, Ukraine is a, is different from most of the other ex-Soviet republics. Uh, but talk, maybe talk about that. Uh, if there have been other examples of, of this controversy on a lower level. Yeah. So, um, probably the best example is actually Estonia which was cited in Metropolitan Hilarion, who is, he does like external affairs for the Moscow Patriarchate, mentioned this a couple of times. It's been brought up in terms of history. But so Estonia, there's a Estonian Orthodox Church that was given autocephaly um, by the Ecumenical Patriarchate in the 1990s. I think it was 1996. And Russia threw a fit and said, no. Um, there is a kind of temporary upper level schism 
basically just removing, uh, I believe basically what Russia did was just remove the patriarch's name from um, prayers. Uh, so, yeah, so it wasn't quite as thorough of a schism, um, but that is probably the closest post-Soviet example that okay. I can think of. Okay. Um, and now talk, talk, um, about, uh, you, you sort of talked to some about this already, uh, the impact of the schism of Russia kind of breaking off from the ecumenical patriarch. What does that do in terms of orthodoxy in general? It, it, my, like, from the way it looks like these churches are already so independent of one another that uh, it's it's not clear to me like like obviously the moscow patriarchate intended this is like a heavy blow like haha we've you know we've really got you now we're we're cutting you off but do, is it really that big a deal like they they already seem like they're so autonomous already uh, that I'm not sure what the what the impact is. I think it's one of those things that it's a big deal to uh, people like me who like paying attention to uh, church politics for <laughs> some weird reason. Um, I don't know how I got here, uh, but I I think as a I think as a general rule for your average Orthodox believer, it really doesn't mean much. Um, partly because. The United States is one of the United States and Canada are two of the places where the church situation is extremely confusing. And as much as you could have a ton of different Orthodox churches under different leadership in the same city, like I, I remember in New York, within a five mile radius of me or something, there was like a Armenian Orthodox church, there was a Greek Orthodox church, there was another Greek Orthodox church, there was a Ukrainian Orthodox church, a Russian Orthodox church. That's not really the case elsewhere in Europe, especially in like majority Orthodox countries. So in terms of running into say like Greek Orthodox in Greece running into an issue where they can't get communion at a Russian church is probably gonna be pretty unlikely. Um, so I think where, but I think where, as I, as I said, like where I think it's probably the biggest problem is places like Mount Athos, um, where you do have proximity of, uh, of different Orthodox groups. Um, and you do have some questions of like land and property, um, that aren't exactly easily resolved and could become increasingly complicated if this continues. All right, I want to get away from the church a little bit and place this schism not just in the context of the the Russia-Ukraine conflict, which itself I think is has to be put in some context. Um, there's a whole uh, deeper problem or kind of deeper running conflict between Russia and Ukraine that it seems to me 
that has been going on, you know, I mean, off and on since the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and really, it, like, you know, kicked into gear with the, the Maidan and the, the, the sort of serious political break that's happened since then, that basically comes down to, like, uh, it's like who gets the house in the divorce. Uh, there's this heritage of Russian history that has to go back to Kiev and the Kievan Rus. And, and it's like impossible, it seems like, uh, for these two countries to share that heritage. Somebody has to have it and the other one can't have it. And there's a lot of tension that's built up uh, over, you know, who gets to be the real kind of heirs to that tradition. Is this, is this part of that? I mean, is, is that the, the bigger issue here is, you know, who, who gets to claim the culture and who, who has to be kind of, uh, on the outside? Yeah, I think that's definitely the biggest issue at the heart of this, especially for um, the Kremlin, which in all of this has appeared to not really know what to do, um, which, fair. <laughs> see, see, this was going to be my next question. I said, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I th it's hard, though. I mean, I think, so Russia, I, I mean, there's this fa that famous quote from Putin after um, the annexation of Crimea that he basically calls Kiev the mother of all Russian cities. Um, and the word, I mean, basically the word that he uses is, I mean, implies, I think, a sort of like ethnic Russianness. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, I don't really know. I, I, suppose, I suppose it's to bring in uh, Benedict Anderson here unnecessarily. Um, <laughs> I suppose it's possible that you can have kind of two sort of imagined communities um, that effectively use the same history and draw upon the same history up until a certain point, uh, yet exist alongside of each other. I think part of the problem is that it's just almost been, it's, a, it's an exclu exclusive historical narrative because, I mean, Russia... I, I mean, I really think a lot, most of this probably applies on Russia, honestly, um, wants to insist that Ukraine is Russian. Um, and I think until that changes, no, they can't really, it can't really exist alongside of each other. Uh, talk a little bit more about how the Kremlin has responded to this, because there is a, a Part of Vladimir Putin's uh, governing ideology has been the notion of restoring Russian greatness and restoring uh, Russian pride, and that's all wrapped up in uh, the Orthodox Church and in the history of the Russian people, which gets at you know these questions about who gets to have Kiev stuff, uh, and and so how you know how are they kind of handling this, which you know this kind of seems to be a, a blow to him in, in that sense or a slap in the face maybe. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't actually really know if, even if the Kremlin has said all that much. Um, the primary narrative coming out of 
uh, Russian state media is that this is basically um, Constantinople is at war with um, Moscow. Um, and basically, I mean, basically the burden of the blame was on Constantinople doing this crazy thing after it seemed to uh, support um, the Kremlin. The, or, yeah. <laughs> Moscow Patriarchate's position on um, Ukrainian autocephaly. Um, my guess is it probably wants to, the Kremlin probably just wants to stay the hell out of this, uh, for which I frankly cannot blame them. Um, <laughs> um, I think the cooperation that there has, I mean, the significant amount of cooperation that there has been between Putin and uh, Kirill has, it extends to places, to issues that are useful. Um, And this is sort of the thing that would definitely be in the dominion of the church. Um, Which, yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense. (laughs) all right so um let's talk a little bit about uh i think the the main argument that you make in your piece which is the relationship between orthodoxy and the nation state and i I think I, i found it interesting because i mean the rise of the nation state kind of freed much of the Orthodox Church from the Ottoman Empire, right? I mean, uh, Greece and Bulgaria and Serbia and Macedonia, like all these Balkan countries uh, would not exist were it not for the rise of nationalism and the nation-state that spurred them to rebel against the Ottoman Empire and and win their independence. Um, So in that sense, you know, it's been kind of a kind of cool for the orthodox church that that this has happened but as you say in in your piece the church itself has never really uh, adjusted to what it means that that we're not in an age of empires anymore we're in an age of nation states and you can sort of have uh, these autonomous national churches but that then inevitably gets wrapped up in questions of nationalism, as in this case where it's, you know, an issue almost of resisting uh, Russian, you know, the kind of effort to establish a Russian nationalism or even imperialism, if you want to go that far, uh, in Ukraine. You know, the the, move, the desire to have an independent church is wrapped up in the national desire to kind of get away from that and separate from that. Uh, but the church itself just doesn't seem to know what to do with that, I guess. So talk about, uh, talk about that. Yeah. I mean, part of the complexity is that, yeah. So basically, as you, as you said, like the 1800s, when, um, there are all these independence movements, um, in the Orthodox world, uh, and having having the church on your side for that was re- really big help. Uh, <laughs> uh, part of the problem was that um, under the Ottomans, there were these these things, the millet system, and to essentially break free from that, um, 
it really, I mean, it really helped to be an independent nation state and to say that because basically it was a Greek community defined mostly as a Greek community saying no for Bulgarian. Well, it didn't work out very well for the Bulgarians uh, for a little bit who were excommunicated for a heresy known as ethnophilatism. Um, but yeah, so aside from essentially declaring nationalism a heresy, uh, the church hasn't really done a particularly good uh, job of enforcing it. Um, there had not much has been done, and it's really hard to know what to do because you have uh, all these Orthodox countries. Like Greece is actually a really good example where something like ninety something percent of Greeks identify as Greek Orthodox, and that's but practice is really low. Um, so you end up having what seems to be more of an identity than an actual on-the-ground faith. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's in many respects a canonical question. Um, and essentially what there needs to be is a sort of ecclesial structure, whether that means more of a center, I guess, I guess is one solution. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's uh seems like something they should be working on though. I mean, you know. Seems seems like well, something that <laughs> they should be thinking about. Well there there was supposed to be talks about this for a while. That hasn't really happened yet. Okay. Uh, oh, um, the one big pan Orthodox meeting that uh happened in Crete um sort of fell apart because well, basically, the most recent panel of the next meeting, um, basically fell apart because of seating arrangements. So, oh my god. <laughs> I mean, okay, there's a little more to that. I just kind of like saying the seating arrangements because it gets to the sort of pettiness that you have in the early church, where you have bishops like punching each other. Um, so, <laughs> uh, thankfully, we don't have that. I. I to be clear to um, everyone who I may potentially work with in the future, I do not advocate for advocate for bishops punching each other. Um, <laughs> I just think early church history is kind of interesting that way. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, there 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 is a whole, there was a whole thing about even you know back in the very early days, like when you introduced the five patriarchs at a gathering, like what order did you have to introduce them in? Like who got to be first and who got to be <laughs> second? And, you know, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's always been this way. It's like, uh, you know, who, who cares? <laughs> but, and yet, you know, it's, it's a big deal to these guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's all about power. It's not even really about theology. It's all about power. <laughs> right. But it's not, I mean, it's not even power. It's like this, the trappings of power. It's not even real power. It's whose name, yeah. who gets, whose name gets read off first. Yeah. Um, so what happens now like where do things stand in terms of the ukrainian church like they've been granted the right to form uh an autocephalous church i i i assume that hasn't formally happened yet or maybe it has i don't know um like what, what's the next step um so i think what essentially happens now is a meeting to try and work on establishing what will actually be the okay. <laughs> Ukrainian autosuffice church. All right. Um, 
He, he knew autocephalous church, not the Ukrainian autocephalous Orthodox church that already exists. Right, right. Um, the, yeah. And I suspect it's going to be trying to then convince parishes to join it. Okay. That's that doesn't seem like that doesn't seem like it would be a tough sell in Western and Central Ukraine. It doesn't seem like it would be that hard to to convince people. Yeah, although I suspect it actually may end up being a little harder because you already do have these two pre-existing institutions um, that I think to some extent have to be sort of dissolved. Yeah, uh, or you know, merged, which I guess you know, same difference, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, plus, like, I mean, these were two, the two hierarchs who were leading the two autocephalous Ukrainian churches had been excommunicated, and, I mean, bringing that back into the fold, I suspect, has probably been controversial. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I suspect it's going to be an extremely long process. We're not really going to uh, have a fully-fledged Ukrainian Autocephalous Orthodox Church that isn't that Ukrainian right. Autocephalous Orthodox Church. Yeah. Oh, we're getting to listen to my dog bark now. I'm sorry. Um, oh, that's okay. I wish I wish there was a dog here. <laughs> Not this one. Uh, God, what is barn? Anyway, I don't want to harp on it. Um, what? <laughs> Seriously, what is going on? Okay, she's done. Maybe. Uh, <laughs> I, I, with the understanding that that uh, you know, as I said earlier, Ukraine is a special case. Uh, it means more to Russia than any of the other former Soviet republics, really, uh, and a, on a kind of historical and spiritual level. Uh, are there any other like? Are there is anybody? Are there any countries that are watching this and thinking, you know, we should do we should follow Ukraine's lead and and. Uh, do this too, or is is that kind of all already worked itself out in the you know twenty five years or whatever it's been since since the end of the Soviet Union? Yeah, I think I think that's I think I think it's unlikely that anything else would pop up that's similar. I don't really know where it would. Um, yeah, I mean Serbia has its own church. Uh, Bulgaria has its own church, like Romania has its own church. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't, I suspect that's probably not a concern. I suspect what, I mean, Moscow keeps talking, I mean, Moscow has talked about this sort of setting a precedent to some extent, but I think that's more of a reference to um, n the notion that the patriarchate of Constantinople is sort of overstepping its bounds. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, think. I, okay. Uh, I think that covers it. I guess I kind of understand more than I did before. <laughs> still a little, uh, it, still a little it, esoteric, but okay. In summary, the Orthodox Church is a land of contrast. <laughs> In fact, that's the only line you need for this podcast. We can delete everything else that I said. Okay, all um, right. We can be the shortest shortest podcast on record. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, Hannah, thank you so much uh, for uh, being on and uh, your piece, which 
Uh, I don't think we've worked out a title for yet, or I, <laughs> I would be using it. Uh, but once we do that, I will uh, post that on uh, on the blog, and uh, we'll have both of these things go up, and uh, you know, people can uh, you know check them out, and hopefully, all the questions that they probably never actually had about the Orthodox Church can be answered. Uh, Glad to help for, <laughs> solve a problem that no one knew that they had. <laughs> thank you hannah thank you okay uh, i want to thank hannah geis again for coming on and schooling us all about the orthodox church uh, i apologize for the sound there for some reason my nice microphone did not want to play with skype today so we had to use the built-in microphone on my computer which uh, is always kind of bad news <laughs> but hopefully it's uh Hopefully it worked out okay and you guys can, can make out what we're saying. Uh, Hannah's piece will go up, like I said, as soon as we figure out a title for it, it'll go up on it, and that's the way it was. And I will post a link to it here in the show description. Uh, until next week, then, uh, as always, thanks for listening, and take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.